Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. And I would like to take a moment to thank Cato Gold Sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. I would like to thank Aardvark Tactical for their relentless support for Cato for many years. While they may be famous for their excellent customer service, Project 7 Armor Platform, and Sejin and low-key tactical robots, Aardvark works with teams to deliver custom integrated purpose-built solutions that are designed to protect tactical operators. They find, develop, and manufacture purpose-built products that enhance tactical operator safety. Check them out at aardvarktactical.com. Thank you to Battleboard, a company whose origins were founded by a Marine who was looking for a flexible, durable, and portable map tracking system to coordinate operations on the ground in Afghanistan. Several evolutions later, Battleboard has emerged as an industry leader for those coordinating small and large-scale operations in the field. Veteran-owned and made in America, start your next mission fully prepared with Battleboard. Check them out at battleboard.us. I'd like to thank a long-standing supporter of Cato and our chemical agent program. Founded in 1981, Combined Systems Incorporated is a recognized leader in the design, manufacture, and marketing of security products for the global defense and law enforcement markets. As the premier supplier of less lethal munitions and launching systems, CSI manufactures products for riot control, police tactical teams, corrections officers, and military units. CSI's blue chip customer base includes the U.S. Army, U.S. Marines, U.S. Navy, and the majority of U.S. law enforcement, as well as foreign military and security forces around the world. Check them out at CombinedSystems.com. So in this episode of the Cato Podcast, I have asked Travis Norton and Chris Jennedy to join me as we discuss Sound Doctrine, Chapter 7, Strategy and Tactics. And as each chapter begins with a quote, this is from General A.M. Gray. So General Gray, tactics is not whether you go left or right. Tactics is why you go left or right. So immediately, Sid goes into, in their most rudimentary forms, strategy and tactics are simply a matter of figuring out what needs to be done and how and when to do it. Both identify options for desired resolutions, and in this capacity, they provide the how part of the plan. It is here the principles and techniques of science are blended with the art of judgment and creativity to provide viable solutions to complex problems. While similar in some respects, however, strategy and tactics each involve different concepts and perform different functions, often referred to as the yin and yang. So in Sound Doctrine's definition and Field Command's definition of strategy, and I quote, strategy may be defined as the science and art of employing all available forces in as effective a manner as possible to achieve a successful resolution. It links the ends and means and provides a game plan that tells us how resources which we call means, are employed to achieve our objective. Strategy confronts a situation as a whole and as such requires broad-based plans encompassing all facets of the situations. 
So in, you know, the majority, we talk about tactical problems, but in reality, this could be anything, right? And um, that that often goes back to, you know, the elements of a basic law enforcement strategy, which if you see uh, oftentimes in law enforcement profession, when we, when we get in trouble, it's because we violated one of those strategies. Yeah, and those components of the basic law enforcement strategy are to prevent the loss of life and seek a peaceful or least forceful resolution. You must minimize the risk to uninvolved or innocent parties. You must conform to all laws and agency policies, and you should conform to community expectations. Um, so as Marcus mentioned, uh, in operations, usually in hindsight, uh, when they're evaluating the outcome, and uh, where blame should be assigned, usually uh, you have flawed tactics. Uh, you are also not in alignment with that basic law enforcement strategy. There's either a component that was missing, not considered, or the fundamental tactics that are um, being used by that organization might have never considered uh, those basic or the components of the basic law enforcement strategy. Remember, it's a holistic approach, right? So it's political, social, cultural, legal concerns. All these things involve strategy, and um, but but none of that helps unless you identify what success looks like. I should say we have to remember that when we're talking about strategy and tactics, this is a soft science, right? This is not chemistry. This is not math where there's uh, you know irrefutable laws and uh, equations that can be replicated over and over. There's nuance in the application of this. It's it's like sociology and, and psychology. So a lot of the decisions that need to be made are context dependent. Yeah, one of the things that I talk about is the fact that tactics are context dependent. What works in one situation could be a disaster in another. Um, whenever I teach, I ask, hey, what's the difference between strategy and tactics? And we confuse this a lot of times and just take a basic hostage situation, right? Your overall strategy, your objective is the safe recovery of the hostages. The tactics you use to support that strategy could be vast. It could be stealth probes. It could be sheltering in place. It could be a rescue. Um, you know, it could be opening a door to allow the hostages to escape during a window of opportunity. <clears throat> but a lot of times we, and I've given this example before, and we were just talking about it as rescue task force and my opinion is rescue task force is a tactic that simply supports the overall strategy of stop the dying. And I think a lot of times we confuse strategy and tactics. However, you know, there does have to be an objective to whatever mission that you are conducting when you're out in the field. And that's a good point because there's a hierarchy of uh, strategy and tactics where uh, there's a dividing line sort of between the two, uh, but it highlights uh, the complementary na nature of them. Marcus, you want to break those down? Yeah, so remember, the, the foundation always is the end state, right? You have to have a clearly defined end state. What does success look like? What do you want this to, to look like when we're done, right? And, and, that, and then once you do that, um, you have, uh, if you look at a hierarchy, of strategy and tactics, your tactics come from your strategy. So uh, I really think about all the times I employed tactics and, and it was the right tactic, but it, it really wasn't based on my strategy at all. Like I never took the time to think about that. And 
so you look at that, that comes from your, you know, your education, your experience, right? And that's your knowledge base. That's where your principles come from, the things you will do and the things you won't do. Right. And that's, that's the, that's where your strategy comes from, but you can't see that, right? That's behavioral. And then that's what dictates what tactic you're going to use. Right. And like Travis said, like rescue task force, right. That's a, that's a tactic we use to fulfill a strategy, but, but it's context dependent. So if you don't understand the context or you're lacking in knowledge and experience, you're not going to pick the optimal tactic. And you'll see that in the data, right? When we look at data, you're talking about active shooter, what works and what doesn't work. So that's when you see um, the other part, the behavioral part, that's a tactics. That's the part that, that everyone gets to see. So going to tactics, right from the, the book here, tactics refers to the methods and concepts used to accomplish particular missions. Consequently, they are more precisely focused on the immediate problem at hand and describe the efforts directed toward the resolution of a particular episode. So I want you to think about strategy provides an overall direction. Tactics provides the, the precision. So we often talk about the component parts of strategy are the end state, what we want it to look like, ways and means, right? How do we want it done? What resources do we have available? And often our resources can limit how we accomplish those things. And it's important that you know that, especially if you have to justify your decision-making process post-event or even current event. So a strategy could be compared to a policy describing the overriding or guiding principles, while tactics would be closely related with the procedures required to carry them out. You know, would you uh, use snipers on high-risk search warrants as a strategy, while methods may be you know, what tactics the snipers use or what component parts they use. So what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? When we try to, when, when we often confuse the two things, because they are different, but they, they work together, right? Yeah. I think specifically we say they're, they're separate, but they're inseparable. One of the simplest ways that we usually de <clears throat> describe tactics is simply it's, it's a series of maneuvers that you're doing to accomplish an objective. And when you look back historically, even over the, the span of my career, um, the tactics and technology changes, but the strategy really doesn't. Like what law enforcement's goal is, what we're trying to accomplish uh, in these high-risk operations. Uh, I think now is probably a good time to highlight, you know, there's four parts to a tactical decision. Uh, it's got to be based upon uh, the training that you have. Um, your education, uh, formal or informal, gathered throughout uh, you know your career. Your, you have your experience, and then one that's often overlooked is situational awareness. Your decisions have to be appropriate for the situation that you're facing, and that situational awareness um, doesn't always come from the command post. Uh, it may be the person that's closest to the problem that's able to give the best information or be in the best position to make a decision on what type of tactics or maneuvers are going to be employed uh, for your, your team or element to be successful. Yeah, and in the history of tactical operations, military and law enforcement are littered 
with tragedies and examples of where we didn't trust the guy on the ground who had the greatest amount of situational awareness. And we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. If you took two people and they had the same amount of training and experience, but one had better situational awareness, who's going to make the best decision? It's going to be the person with the best situational awareness. So that's not to be confused with the common operational picture. Right. So it's great that you're in the command post and you have the best situational awareness, but it doesn't do anybody any good if you don't create that common operational picture with, you know, regular updates and situation reports. And it's staggering, you know, uh, for some of us in Cato, when we go up and down the state, how very few agencies have an SOP or in their culture where they give regular situational updates and require people on the perimeter and in the operation to acknowledge those updates because the situation changes your rule your uh, rules of engagement could change your use of force could change and uh, how we don't build that in discipline uh, consistently so back to tactics let's talk a little bit about strategy and then how the tactics work together and both strategy and tactics are composed of actions that can be offensive or defensive. Now, we've allowed uh, our detractors and many people within our own profession to define offense as aggression. And I, and I would argue that's not the case. Offense, and I quote here, is any means by which commanders gain and hold the initiative, maintain freedom of action, and impose their will. It's one of the nine principles of war and is essential to attain decisive results. So nothing about offense says that it has to be aggressive. And same with initiative, right? The initiative is the ability to carry through without being urged. So just think about you're in charge of whatever it is, patrol operation, canine operation. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, we talk a lot about tactical problems, but it could be anything. At some point, you have to have the ability to carry through with your plan. And you cannot do that if you don't take the initiative. And the initiative is just simply the ability to carry through. I think one of the things we have to keep in mind that the, the defense is not a principle. And sometimes I'll get asked when I teach about offense, uh, you know, because I ask a question, hey, how many people have sat on a barricade for 10 plus hours while we just sit there and wait for whatever it is we're waiting for. Now, I'm not saying that that wouldn't happen. However, if you've been sitting in a barricade for two or three hours and you get the search warrant and the suspect's not answering the phone, he's not communicating with you, then it's time to go on the offense. That is how you, again, impose the will of the incident commander on your adversary. If you're just going to sit there and do nothing, doing nothing is not a principle. Defense is not a principle. And the best you're going to get with defense is simply a stalemate. Further, Another thing to think about is, you know, what happens when you have to protect your police station during some type of riot situation or city hall or whatever else it is. And, I, and I'm often asked, well, how do you go on the offense if you're defending? Well, it's simple. You know, you are putting out active reconnaissance. People are patrolling. They're looking. They're out trying to find that information and intelligence and not just sitting static on defense. So I think. Yeah, I, the, I agree. The, yeah, I, I agree. I almost would like they. You think initiative 
like we we all hey that officer's got great initiative like no that's proactivity that's different what we're saying is initiative is not just sitting there responding to the suspect's action but you're actually going to make the suspect respond to you and that doesn't have to be aggression or force but you need to manipulate time and terrain to your advantage and once you get the suspects to react to anything you're doing you have the initiative so let's go back to your example of the police department surrounded rioters are trying to get inside the police department. This happened a few times uh, in the last few years and you're in a completely defensive position and it's very easy to just circle the wagons and go, there's nothing I can do. I'll just wait till they get here and we'll take them on very symmetrically, but you don't have to sit there and just respond to them. There's a lot of things you can do. Like you said, to get that initiative back. And but so what, like, uh, since we brought that example up, let's kind of dial that down a little bit. What are, since your, your strategy is to defend the police department, not let people go in there and attack it or whatever building you are. Right. And it's a riot. What are the tactics you would use to gain that initiative that are offense, but might not be symmetrical. Like we're just going to form up and we're going to go attack the crowd. Right. So that goes to asymmetric, like how do we apply our strengths against that suspect's weakness? And I think to your point, Marcus, there's, you know, don't just get wrapped around the tools that we can use to provide asymmetry. What are some other things that we can use that aren't tangible to affect our adversaries? Yeah, agreed. Right. Like you said, go get intel, you know, when you deploy gas. Right. You deploy gas into the crowd. Are you making them react to you? Well, that's great. But what are you doing during that time period? Right. And that's a very offensive tool. Um, but, well, you know, instead of just reacting, how can you make them respond to you? Can you can you inject yourself into their OODA loop with surprise? Right. With countermeasures so that they're now thinking about what you're doing instead of just standing there shaping operations yeah and uh, that's, that's another right that's another asymmetric strategy that you can use to you know affect your your terrain you know did you clear it of missiles did you make sure that they don't have rocks sitting all over the place all of those different things that you need to look at in your area of operations that can help you support your overall strategy and not and say that's an offensive measure that you can take, um, in, in my opinion. Yeah, controlling ingress and egress, right? Controlling areas of high ground, controlling key areas of terrain, controlling observation, like all those things are are technically offense. There are ways that you're creating asymmetry, so you will use less force and resources down the road. But but they really don't appear. You know, they're not force. Right. They're they're different things like that. So go going into defense. It is any means by which commanders preserve and protect forces, equipment or their freedom of action. Although offense and defense are opposing forms of action, they are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are not in or they are interacting and cannot exist separately. The best defense is a good defense is the old static adage, right? 
This means that offensive action in and of itself may protect forces and equipment while maintaining the initiative. Because it is necessary to rest and replenish, an offensive action cannot be sustained indefinitely, and defensive actions are required. Not surprisingly, any effective strategy or tactic contains both offensive and defensive actions. You see this a lot when, like if we're going to harp on the crowd control example, you see this a lot where we take offense, like we deploy gas, and then we don't push forward and take that terrain away, right? We're not decisive in how we use that. And when we don't do that, we ultimately use more force and more resources and more people on both sides of that uh, adversarial event get injured, right? This is a big chapter. We we could really delve in for 40 minutes on each one. So we're going to go back to maneuvering in time, right? And this this speaks, there's a lot of layers to maneuvering in time, but it's about knowing how to do something is only half the equation. The second part of any strategy or tactic is when. Doing the right thing at the wrong time is ineffectual as doing the wrong thing at any time. In fact, while corrective actions may be taken, time lost can never be regained. Remember the TV westerns when the cavalry comes to the rescue? Sometimes they charged over the hill with banners flying and bugles blaring and rescued the settlers in the nick of time. At other times, all they found were the burning wagons. In each case, the tactics were the same, only timing was different. So it is with all tactical operations. I, I, I like the uh, example of... You can do all the right things, but if you do them in the wrong order, uh, it's not going to work out for you, right? That's a, it's another maneuvering in time thing. So, yes, if you strike and you use the correct tactic, but you do it at the wrong time, it's not going to work out, right? Um, that you know, you think about hitting a, hitting a search warrant when the suspect's gone, right? You're too late, or um, too soon, or when you're not ready, you know. And that that goes back to those principles of war. Uh, any other thoughts on that on that one, gents, on maneuvering in time? I know that's a much deeper uh, topic. No, I think uh, just, you know, tactical operations unfold in four dimensions, five if you add cyberspace, height, length, and width, which is our maneuvering in space. And then obviously we have time. You know, that goes into tempo, which is the rapidity with which your problem is unfolding. And then, you know, you talk about all of those things. As far as time goes, I think, you know, we talk about OODA loop a little bit. Um, but for me, when I talk about maneuvering in time, it's we can't get time back. Right. And, you know, time is continually moving where we can gain space, but we can't do that with time. We can't stop time. Yeah. And it's competitive, right? Like if we're constantly reacting to the suspect, then the suspect has the initiative. And so when we're maneuvering in time, one of the things we need to do going back to OODA loop is make the suspect react to us. That's how we gain the initiative. So uh, further on, he talks about being time sensitive, which is what we're just talking about. Time sensitive, time competitive. Because all tactical operations are dynamic, they are also time sensitive. Decisions and actions that are delayed are often rendered ineffective because of the constantly changing circumstance. And I like this part. Um, I've highlighted this a few times because I read this uh, several times a year. When an adversary is involved, the operation is not only time sensitive, but it is time competitive. Time or opportunity neglected by one adversary can be exploited by another. Recognizing the importance of this characteristic, Napoleon said, quote, It may be that in the future I may lose a battle, 
but I shall never lose a minute. So uh, again, that's just stressing that importance. And then uh, Sid goes on to talk about the OODA loop or uh, Colonel Boyd cycle. He basically observed uh, similarity in many battles, noted in many engagements, that one side had presented the other with a series of unexpected and threatening situations with which the other side had not been able to keep pace. The slower side was eventually defeated. Boyd observed this, and according to his theory, conflict could be seen as a series of uh, time-competitive observation, orientation, decision, and action cycles. And whoever could go through that cycle the fastest would keep the adversary on their heels and therefore went in a, in a nutshell. Um, that talks about those mental snapshots, right? Like you observe, you take that snapshot, then you act on it. Well, the world didn't stop while you took your snapshot. And so the commander, the sergeant, the patrol officer, they can get the most accurate snapshot, act the fastest, and force the other person to react to them, wins. Thoughts on that? This is something that we deal with all the time, and we we might not even recognize it. I'll, I'll give a, a quick example. So we have a, a woman who calls in that her son's uh, got a felony warrant, probably uh, at large, and uh, wanted for a violent felony. And he's inside the kitchen, and that's downstairs in his condo, and he's not aware that the police have been called. So we have some history with him. We know he likes to run. Uh, so we converge on this condo, set up containment. We had the element of surprise and uh, containment's in place. Uh, we checked the front door, uh, see that it's unlocked. Um, mom had moved up to a uh, bedroom, went ahead and locked herself in the bedroom. Uh, so there was some separation between her and this uh, her, her son, who was uh, believed to be armed with some a couple of knives and made some threats. And so after you know briefing our Plan with a couple of contingencies. An officer uh, moved into the vestibule, opened the door, and gave an announcement. In the change of uh, you know initiative and and tempo here, uh, the suspect kicks the door shut and is able to lock the door before that first officer is able to prevent him from locking the door. And so, uh, while we had completely surprised that suspect, he seized the initiative back uh, by locking the door and immediately went to implement his plan. He went to an alternate uh, exit and was going to bail out. Fortunately, he ran into another uh, officer. So now he's having to change plans based upon where we were prepositioned. And this goes back and forth for a little bit. Um, obviously, we have some communication uh, with the, the mom inside. And we, we changed the conditions uh, such that he ended up coming out and we uh, took him into custody. But you know, over a period of about 90 seconds to two and a half minutes, the, the initiative and who was reacting to who uh, teeter-tottered back and forth between uh, the suspects and, and the officers that were there. The moment that door got locked, we lost the initiative. Uh, we were now in a position where we either had the force entry or, well, sorry, not just force entry, uh, but possibly force entry and uh, protect the mom from further harm. Yeah, any any great great example of how it can switch, and that that's also speaks to the importance of contingency planning and being flexible. I'll, I'll touch on Boyd cycles just for a second because it's a topic that's often oversimplified, and um, you can 
really get pretty deep on the the OODA cycle. But one of the the, the most important step as cited by Boyd was orientation uh, because the orientation is made up by your uh, education experience and not just your professional experience, but your life experience. Um, you can be affected by uh, or inhibited by things that occurred in your childhood or things based upon a, a religious belief. All of these uh, different factors influence that decision making. Um, when you look at it from a career aspect, if you're aware of somebody um, you know, who was found civilly liable for a, a bad decision or who lost rank, those inhibit some of those decisions. Uh, starting with observation, we already touched on situational awareness. You you have to have um, some types of outs, some type of outside information to be able to evaluate the, the unfolding circumstances that are occurring and um, try and identify a pattern. And that pattern comes from your um, you know studying these events, your experience. So as a result of that information coming in and being filtered that orientation step then you go into uh your decision and action and being able to implement those especially from a command position is one of the, the challenges and that's where the decentralized leadership comes in but we emphasize you know pre-event planning go through decision making exercises and uh or, or walk through debrief situations from a leadership standpoint talk about uh what you would hope to see uh, in those circumstances. And that leads into kind of a broader conversation uh, that we talk about with framing the operation, right? We're going to define what we want to occur, who we want to do it, when we want it to occur, and then what we don't want to have happen. And when our, you know, the people working for us, when they have that information, they understand what our metrics are for making, you know, certain decisions, and they're able to act on our behalf. Uh, much quicker reacting to stimulus from uh, our suspects or, or whatever the adversary is. And whoever's able to go through that process faster um, is, is the one that's going to prevail. The other thing that's factored in with tactics, and Marcus talked about it a little bit, is our nine principles of war. We have our maneuver, objective, offense, already mentioned, simplicity, economy of forces, Mass, unity of command, surprise, and security. All those elements are present in all adversarial conflicts. The more of them that are in our favor and our decision-making when we're looking at our strategy and tactics, the higher the likelihood that we're going to prevail with, with a favorable outcome. Yeah, and the better you you use the OODA loop, right? The, each time the suspect's reaction gap gets bigger. So which only allows you to have, you know, gain the initiative and keep it. And it's exponential. So once I get a suspect to react to me and I keep doing that, by the time they react, I'm already doing something different. And that gap gets greater and greater. And, and Sid kind of talks about that. And that that's talks about maintaining the initiative, right? The initiative. So on that market, we create additional stimulus. Right. So it's not usually a one and done. And uh, this happens with force options, especially when uh, we're trying to deescalate. Uh, we may use a noise flash diversionary device and a kinetic energy projectile simultaneously to overwhelm uh, our suspect. Or it may be uh, in sequence. 
so that they're constantly uh, put in a position to react to um, this technology or the, the techniques that we're applying and, and put them in a you know least favorable position to respond and ideally put them in a position where they realize that resistance is futile and they surrender and then we'll accomplish the surrender. Yeah, great, great example. So Sid goes on to talk about chess, right? The importance of initiative can be easily and clearly understood in a game of chess. Before the game begins, each side appears to be equally matched with 16 pieces, identical in all respects except color, opposing each other on a square board. Why is it then that the players consider it important to decide who is to go first? Only a novice player fails to recognize the advantage. White holds over black. It is that the first to move gains a tactical advantage. Since white is the first move, black is held helpless until the move is completed. And if black does not respond appropriately, white will widen that advantage gap still further with the next move. To ignore the opponent's move and proceed as if it didn't exist is to invite defeat. That one really struck home because I think about how many different kinds of tactical operations I was involved patrol, SWAT, special uh, enforcement teams, where we just followed our procedure, right? We just checked. I wouldn't say we checked the boxes, but we followed the procedure, not adapting to what the suspect did. We just did it, right? And and we ignored, oftentimes we ignored what the suspect did. And we just kept doing what we we're going to do. And it, and it worked out a lot of the times and, and, you know, not understanding the science of what was going on. We thought we did a great job, but it was, it was really mostly luck. And so that, that little, the little part, um, kind of just hit home for me. So, so sticking with the chess analogy, analogy. So one of the things that we try and accomplish is we establish containment. We either want to contain or isolate uh, our suspects. And when we do that, we limit their ability to maneuver and we maintain the freedom of movement. Uh, we always ask our students, like, well, you know, what's the most powerful chess piece on the board? And it's the queen because of all the different directions that the queen can maneuver. Conversely, the least powerful uh, piece on the board is often identified as a pawn uh, because it's predictable. It only has one or two directions that it can move. And uh, so when using that analogy and talking about those basic concepts uh, when we're trying to um, you know, gain an advantage in an adversarial uh, event, it goes back to you know, who can restrict uh, the other person's movement or who, who's in a position where they can maintain freedom of movement. Yeah, which is the initiative, right? Trav, let me read this. I want to quote this. This is a little bit longer than I like to normally read in the podcast because you can read the book yourself. But uh, when I'm done, Trav, you could kind of give an example. So a commander may decide to initiate an action simply to cause a suspect to respond. By forcing a response, the commander maintains freedom of action while requiring the suspect to react. Once gained, the initiative can be maintained by compelling the suspect to respond in some manner that consumes so much time or so many resources that it is not practical to do anything but react. This eventually results in exposing a critical, sometimes even decisive vulnerability that can be exploited. And I, and I, and the reason why I asked you, Travis, I, I, we were talking about a couple of uh, operations in the last couple of weeks where a commander did that. 
right? And uh, particularly, I was thinking about that. You know, a guy flees um, from a pursuit and then gets on a boat. So now he's he's barricaded in a boat, right? So how do we get the initiative from a guy who's barricaded in a boat when we got there in our police cars and we're just patrol guys, right? So what are some of the things you can do to force that suspect to react to you to start gaining that initiative back? And, and that's just my example. You can pick any example you want. But when I heard that kind of debrief, I'm like, man, there's like three or four things that if you weren't paying attention, you'd think those didn't work. Like those were ineffectual. But if you look at the center of gravity and you look at eliminate, diminish, or destroy, they're all things that help capture and gain that uh, that initiative, even though one in and of itself did not, you know, get the suspect in custody. Right. I mean, your overall strategy in, in a situation like that is obviously arrest the suspect, take him into custody. I started, you start thinking about asymmetry. How do we pit our strengths against the suspect's weakness? One of those things is our ability to sustain is usually greater than that of our adversaries. But also, I think, and it, and it kind of leads into the next section, is providing the suspect with a dilemma, meaning a choice between two or more disagreeable alternatives. You can't stay and you can't go. So surrender is what you get. Um, I think when you provide your adversaries with a problem, you're just giving them something to solve. You have to give them those disagreeable alternatives. And I think... To think about that, they involve two things, space and time. And one of the things when we talk about tactical dilemmas, what it will give you is an ability to, to articulate why you take certain courses of action, whether that could be to your team, to your patrol team, could be to your bosses, it could be to politicians. This tactical dilemmas involving space and time help you articulate your why, right? We all taught, we all know we are great at doing things, how to do things. We just don't know why we do them half the time and we can't explain why. Tactical dilemmas gives you that. And we talk about space and time. One of those is there, there's five ways to do that. Crossfire. We're not, and I'll just give a couple here, Marcus, and kind of turn it back over to you. But number one is crossfire. Whichever way that suspect comes, you know, if he comes, if you're at a residence on a barricade and he comes out the three side. He's going to run into containment two and three. Anywhere that suspect goes, he moves, he's covered. Uh, and then you have chemical agents. All we're trying to do with chem agents is make that space uninhabitable. Well, that that might not work for a boat, right? A, a suspect sitting on a rowboat. If I make that space uninhabitable, because what we haven't talked about yet is water is our, our adversary here as well. You know, I don't know how deep that water is. I don't know how cold that water is. I don't know if my suspect can swim. And so unless I'm trying to utilize deadly force, all of those things become important into my decision making of the tactics that I'm going to use, you know, asymmetric strategies, those types of things to get that guy into custody. So, Marcus, I know there's there's a few more here you want to cover. Yeah, I mean, the overall point was get to get the initiative get the suspect to react to you and and it may take more than one thing right and i think about the guy in the boat you may you know hose that guy down with water well that's not going to make him come out right away 
but now he's reacting to you and he's worried about how he stays warm. He's worried about how he covers up. He's worried about other things. And you just keep the pressure on and you do that in investigations, right? You shake the tree, you keep the pressure on. Like there's a bunch of different examples of this. So um, I, I just thought that was a, a, a great example of the OODA loop and how you, that gap gets bigger and bigger. And so uh, Sid goes on to talk about tempo, you know, and how we, uh, we you know we use tempo. Uh, we could go a whole half hour on tactical dilemmas and uh, you basically want to give them two options and they're both lesser evils, right? And whichever one they pick, you want to exploit the other. And the simplest version would be, you know, which side are they coming in? I'm a solo guy barricaded. Which side are you trying to come in? And uh, I'm going to defend that side. And you're going to come in two sides. So now I have to pick one. Whichever one they pick, you go on the other side. Like that's the simplest version of a, a tactical dilemma. He goes into tempo, right? As a component part of maneuvering in time. And so tempo refers to the speed or rhythm of activity. Like initiative tempo provides a freedom of action. Think about a fast break in basketball or the breakaway in hockey. Like all those are just how fast we do things. We slow up and speed up things to gain the initiative, right? So we want to, the fast break in hockey or a basketball, they're just conventional tactics applied at a faster pace so the opponents can't react. They're so effective that they often leave the goal unguarded and free of for exploitation. The tactics didn't change. It's just how fast we executed them, right? In the same manner, tactical situations provide similar opportunities. A commander who quickly recognizes and seizes those opportunities can pick up the pace. This requires the suspect to do the same or risk being outmaneuvered. Since sustainability lies with the authorities, a high tempo almost always favors the police, but only if it's controlled and disciplined. If it's not controlled or disciplined, that's just chaos and that might not help, right? So tempo is always measured in relative terms. Um, a commander doesn't not need to constantly operate at a high tempo, only faster than the suspects. That's such a key thing, right? I don't have to go fast all the time. I just have to go faster than the suspect can react to me, right? And that's kind of keeping them on their heels, you know, figuratively or realistically, right? And that's how you force kind of those dilemmas. Yeah, I think another thing to think about with tempo is, you know, you can feel the tempo of a situation you're involved in. You can tell when there's a whole density of activities occurring. And normally during a critical incident, you have a whole lot of activities at the beginning. Then that thing drops off. There's a lot of inactivity. And then you have a whole lot of activity at the end when we take that suspect into custody. So um, that's one of the one of the ways that I think about that. I think about tempo. Yeah. And that's not to say that it's chaotic, right? Like we want to, we want the suspect to feel like it's chaotic because they're having trouble keeping up mentally uh, and emotionally, not because we're chaotic, right? Like we want it to be a, a very controlled deal to create that chaos in their mind. Right. So, um, but you may also do the opposite, right? A confused and chaotic environment associated with conflicts coupled with an emotionally unstable suspect usually results in a degradation of the situation. In these circumstances, a commander may attempt to make the situation static 
to calm the suspect and provide more time for thinking and planning. In this manner, slowing the pace provides opportunities for the commander to gain control of the situation. So the point is, you can speed up and slow down these events to your advantage. So um, we've allowed the conversation about de-escalation to always talk about how we have to slow things down. Now, I'm not saying you don't slow things down because often, but not always, slowing things down gives you more of an opportunity to make decisions, to gain better situational awareness, to communicate better, but not always. And so yeah, and that, you, you need to the- do it to your advantage, not just because somebody said that's de-escalation. Yeah, that's the time competitive aspect of these adversarial events. As we slow things down, we create less stimulus, we give more time. It also may allow our suspect to, um, you know, formulate additional plans, whether that's creating additional barricades uh, or fortifications, uh, accessing, uh, you know, weapons, um, improvising armor, uh, you know, calling an Uber uh, to be a block away so they can break the perimeter and and hop into that getaway car. Um, that that planning process uh, is going both ways, and as each side continues to analyze and synthesize potential options and decisions, again, the one that maintains that initiative and momentum uh, is generally the one that's going to prevail. And and really. I would argue a lot of people do this instinctively, but not all the time. And so just taking a little mental discipline to consider what we're talking about, consider how you've already done it, but then consider how you could even do it better. You will find that you will use less resources, less force. You'll control more of the situation. It will be less chaotic and you will be able to explain your decisions better. Sid goes on to talk about developing strategy. And I highlighted this part because I always like it. In mankind's search for underlying rules and tenets upon which to build sound strategy and tactics, a number of rules and tenets have emerged. While even a brief discussion of all these is well beyond the scope of sound doctrine, this book, the understanding and application of some of these are adversarial in nature and worth discussing. This is because not only do the vast majority of law enforcement tactical operations involve adversaries, but they are more complex than any other type. So remember, tactical science is designed for all kinds of problems, right? Natural, mechanical disasters, and adversarial. We focus a lot on adversarial because law enforcement has the biggest trouble with those ones because adversaries think for themselves and try to outmaneuver us. So talks a little bit more about that. Operations involving suspects are conflicts and provide stark examples of how important the application of sound principles is in resolving tactical situations. When confronting suspects, creating a dilemma has proven extremely effective. A dilemma results when a person is confronted with a choice between two disagreeable alternatives, which you talked about. Tactical dilemma is used to force a decision resolution with an adversary and occurs when a suspect is placed in such a predicament that no matter what is done, the predicament can be exploited. So we want to place them in that position so that they're forced to surrender, right? And we brought that up earlier, but I, I'm trying to catch up in the book because we jumped around a little bit. Tactical dilemmas, and, and Trav, just, you just said this, tactical dilemmas are accomplished by the exploitation of either space or time. When the dilemma is one of space, the suspect finds himself in a quandary of where he can't stay and where he can't move. This results in a checkmate 
predicament similar to the game of chess. When the dilemma is one of time, the suspect is deprived of the ability to react effectively. There are five common techniques for creating these dilemmas using space and three with time. Trav talked about crossfire, right? And that was the first one that we'd use to deprive an adversary of space. We don't need to keep talking about that. Thanks, Trav. Then we talk about um, tactical maneuvers like a pincer, right? Or a hammer and anvil. They work much in the same manner. Those maneuvers work to position personnel in positions of advantage so that, that even the threat of force becomes apparent. A suspect who finds himself in such a position is much more likely to surrender. Then Trav talked a little bit. Uh, I know you mentioned chemical agents. They deprive a suspect of space by making it uninhabitable. There's an added advantage of that. Even if the suspect can't be seen, chemical agents will work. Likewise, placing chemical agents where one does not want a suspect to know. So we're going to take away terrain, right? We're going to shape that battle space. So maybe, maybe I want him to go this way, but I don't know where he is, but I know where I don't want him to go. And so I can use my chess pieces or my chemical agents to do that, right? A third method is through the use of deceptive diversion. This causes a suspect to make an incorrect assumption as a result of a ploy or subterfuge. It may be done to support an entry or become vulnerable to another weapon, such as a long rifle or non-lethal. Whether the suspects vacate a space voluntarily or involuntarily is irrelevant. The important point is that he has done something that places him in a favorable position for exploitation. The classic example would be all negotiations have failed and the negotiator gets the hostage taker to look out the window for the snipers, right? Like that, that'd be like the classic example, right? But there's, there's all kinds of, of examples where we exploit that, right? If you, if you want food, you have to come out and pick it up, right? We're forcing them into that dilemma. And maybe even more common or uh, simpler is you uh, put a diversion diversionary device on, you know, the four side and you enter the one, two corner, or uh, you focus your diversions out front uh, on the one side and you enter uh, on the three side through a slider. Uh, something to distract or divide the suspect's attention. And then you can then create multiple stimulus for them to react to like you. Where are they going to put their their efforts? Uh, we think about uh, you know the historical event, uh, the the good guys uh, in Sacramento. Um, there was a sniper initiated assault uh, that occurred at the front of the store, and then there was a team that was already inside the store, like in the storage closet, that was able to start maneuvering uh, from a flank, surprising uh, the suspects and being able to neutralize them before they can access all the, the hostages. So it's just, it's overwhelming stimulus. Thank you, Chris. A fourth technique is with the use of combined arms. Since the days of Napoleon, the use of combined arms, more than one type of weapon system, has provided a significant advantage to a commander who understands and employs this method. Weapons are not all alike. Shortcomings of one may be a strong point of another. For instance, a pistol up close or a rifle downrange, right? Long range. And more common, the less lethal example we gave, it's, uh, you know, you hit somebody with a pepper ball, uh, get them to turn away, their vision's obscured a little bit, follow it up with a taser. Now they've, uh, you got your neuromuscular incapacitation, you're able to cuff them under power, you're combining these less lethal resources to overcome the suspect's senses, uh, their, either their will or ability to resist, and giving you that window of opportunity to get on them, hands-on, take them to custody. 
Yeah, and that speaks to being decisive, right? So we're we're overwhelming the resistance as fast and decisively as possible to use the least amount of force possible for the shortest period of time to make the situation safe. So, and then finally, you deprive a suspect of the value of space. So that can also create the tactical dilemma, right? We used to that, see this all the time in... It, it, it was used like a, a asset for SWAT teams was, you know, how many halogen lights did they have on a stand uh, to be able to light up a structure? And those guys, people that remember Die Hard, you know, they brought big lights out to light up the Nakatomi Plaza. One of the, you know, we use spotlights uh, on containment uh, to, you know, the, that suspect generally wants to avoid breaking that beam uh, of light uh, just because the attention it draws to them. So, by flooding a structure with certain lights, if they're trying to avoid detection, uh, that limits the space they can move. Another thing that is used a little bit more common by those organizations that have means are the, the tactical tractors or the rooks. And they're able to start taking apart that structure that has provided them uh, with the element of security piece by piece until you know they're down to, to one little room where the, the, that cover has been removed completely. Now they have no barrier between them and law enforcement and that puts them in that dilemma yeah and that's kind of why we use smoke and and we do those are great examples so uh time is another factor right when attempting to create a tactical dilemma boyd cycle demonstrates the value of time in a situation prior to taking action a suspect must first observe orient decide by interfering with any of those factors the commander is able to delay the action and exploit that circumstances right and that's when Sid starts referring to the uh, one of the ninth principles of war, which is surprise. And I, and I want you to think about surprise as just striking at an unexpected time or place or in an unanticipated manner. That's all it is. Sometimes we get like real fancy, but the human mind is constantly searching for homeostasis, right? It's constantly searching and it's lazy. And so you can lull, we get lulled, suspects get lulled in the patterns all you have to do is act in an unanticipated time or an unanticipated manner and that will hijack that OODA loop right because all humans are handicapped by that uh linked with surprise is obviously security security is one of the nine principles of war refers to the fact that a suspect must not be given advance warning of tactical team's actions so a breach of security ruins that element of surprise the quote is plans known or plans defeated expresses the importance of this so and so yeah we experienced that trying to get into position you know we, we had a debrief of a uh, hrt in a second floor apartment and part of the team went up and they went across the carport uh, well they had to use a ladder in order to affect that movement onto the carport and, and they were setting up at the, the alternate breach point up there but at a certain point they dropped the ladder and that noise was out of place the suspect already knew that the you know, that the officers were out there because there had been negotiation efforts, but that could have been that compromise, that lack of or breach of security, um, you know, because of, uh, you know, the sound, lack of sound or light discipline that creates an alert that gets the suspect's attention. It may not be where we want uh, the suspect's attention to turn. Although we've already talked about it, if knowing that suspect is now moved to a different area, that's an opportunity that could be exploited uh, for a breach. And to uh, extract the hostage in that situation. So, we, you know, our plan may be to set up two uh, simultaneous breaches, 
not planning on having that sound distraction draw attention uh sorry not distraction but that sound draw attention to the suspect to our team but recognizing that unplanned movement may provide the window of opportunity for a favorable outcome the second method of depriving a suspect of time is by the use of physiological diversions so there's a deceptive diversion causes the suspect to come to an inappropriate conclusion by providing misleading information. A physiological diversion is one that acts directly on an organism by affecting one or more of the five senses. This type of diversion is commonly accomplished by the use of distraction devices. They create sensory overload with a loud noise, dazzling light, so often referred to as flashbangs, noise flash diversionary devices. But there's a lot of other things you can use as stimulus to create that other than uh, a noise flash diversionary device. So they occur faster than the mind can assimilate it, and that results in a very short period of confusion, the inability to react. A third technique for creating a tactical dilemma with time is through the use of tactics. Some tactics have the ability to so overwhelm a suspect's ability to comprehend what's happening that his reactions are slowed. One example is a coordinated sniper initiated assault. This type of assault utilizes multiple long riflemen against one or more suspects at a predetermined event, time, or signal. The long riflemen simultaneously fire on their targets. This type of assault is used only when the death of the suspect is acceptable. By acceptable, we mean the last resort within policy and the law. These tactics can be used in hostage rescue situations where even a suspect who survives will have difficulty in mustering an effective response. So that's a really dramatic example. I think there's probably some more more basic ones. Like I want to think about crowd control response, right? So you can use tactics to overwhelm the suspect's ability to comprehend what's happening when you move more than one element towards a crowd at the same time. And then they have to decide that dilemma, which element's actually going to interact with us and which isn't. And, you know, that's surprise and deception, like all those things. I just use crowd control because it's a like everyone can imagine a crowd control problem and one of the things we see often throughout the world and definitely in the united states is scouts will go out and see where crowd control personnel are responding law enforcement and they're going to go take the crowd on and they'll make they'll, they'll report back to the crowd to the organizers this is a riot not a not a lawful protest and they'll respond so if you do that in multiple areas that confuses the leaders of the riot and it puts them in a dilemma, right? And there's that, that time it takes them to make that decision. You can overwhelm them. So a, a much less dramatic, forceful example, but again, you can use tactics, simultaneous entry, these kind of things to overwhelm the decision-making process as well. Any, any other thoughts on that one? No, I think that folds in with some of the other examples that uh, we gave previously. I mean, this, that's the, the crux of it. We're talking about Tactics. And I think from like the SWAT perspective, the wheelhouse that everybody wants to be an expert in is the close quarters battle or close quarters combat. It's simply understanding, you know, how to move to have the angle to have an advantage or an adversary who's armed and intent on doing harm to us or others. It's just a series of movements and it's time dependent in order to. to and contextual. Yeah. yeah. And contextual. Moving along here. When developing strategies and tactics, it's useful to examine events that have occurred in the past because certain actions tend to yield certain effects. So uh, that's when he talks about the importance of history and that there are no real new tactical problems. There's just new technology and new people. He goes on to talk about the Texas Tower and how they were teams were created to handle similar situations. And uh, their initial job was to be counter snipers, long rifle spotters. But then uh, throughout the 
the late 70s, early 80s, uh, there became fortified uh, locations called rock houses for crack cocaine, and they were high-risk search warrant services. And then uh, from high-risk search warrant services, you know, SWAT teams uh, developed high-risk entries, and uh, the strategy was so successful that teams, you know, SWAT teams were formed throughout, throughout the country to accomplish various missions. So law enforcement tactics have proven successful in the past are passed on from police officer to police officer and training officer to trainee without any real understanding of the why. But a commander who possesses even a rudimentary understanding of why certain tactics work is much more effective than one who naively attempts to just impose yesterday's solution on today's problems. So to expand on that, I would say, if you can understand these principles, you won't jam one of your solutions into the wrong problem. You only have to read one debrief or go to one debrief where something bad happened and recognize that people on scene were following a procedure. It was a solution that had worked many times before, but they didn't take the time to examine the, the actual problem to pick the correct strategy and the optimal tactic. Yeah, let's pause here just for a second to talk about this. In one of the references, just a, a different book, it was called Clausewitz on War. The author was very specific and said that um, you, you must read history because experience is personal and it may be insufficient in order to allow you to understand the broader strategic thinking, especially when we're newer or, or lack the, the depth of experience, we have that confirmation bias. We had a good result, therefore everything you know I did was right and I'm gonna replicate it next time. And then they struggle the next time something happens because the decisions they made were context dependent and the, the conditions in this new event do not align. And the decisions, you know, are not based in principles. They're not applying the fundamentals that we teach for the decision making. And they didn't, you know, go through a process of uh, critical thinking and analysis and synthesis uh, on that first event that would have provided some visibility on you know, some of the shortcomings they may have had that worked out in their favor, but only because of luck. Uh, this often gets talked about in a in different way. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, and that's where a person's lack of knowledge and skill in a certain area causes them to overestimate their own competence. So they had a success value, you know, one of one. Therefore, it's that that's always going to be the right way, and, and it's false. So if there's nothing else from this podcast or any of the things that we try and teach, it's be a student in history. It's the repository of lessons learned. And, you know, Marcus says it all the time, like there's no new tactile problems. Uh, it's just the, the time and terrain uh, that, that has really changed. Other people have had to face uh, these same issues before. And if you understand uh, what the critical components in their decision making, it would really help. Uh, we reread recently the mission to men and me. And they, they recount, uh, you know, going into uh, Afghanistan early on just after 9-11. Um, and they had the, the people in that troop read the books from uh, the Russian soldiers that had spent a decade in Afghanistan, you know, 15 or so years prior. So they understood what those uh, lessons were that were shared. When you look back at some of the military strategists, you look at Clausewitz or fast forward to Fuller, who are, you know, wrote out the nine principles of war. It's only in looking back at these common themes from these events that allowed them to prepare uh, to have success moving forward because they're factoring in those nine principles of war. And we talk about this with, uh, you know, our response to 
uh, active shooter events and having communication issues, no clear chain of command, uh, inappropriate self-deployment and uh, parking, like undisciplined parking. Like those are four common things that keep happening uh, in these events. So we develop our procedures moving forward and train to a standard to try and mitigate those as much as, as we can in these tense, time-competitive situations, um, we're more likely to have a favorable outcome. So uh, Chris made a great point about history and uh, learning from it. I think that's a great uh, stopping point for part one of Sound Doctrine, chapter seven. And in part two, we'll continue with chapter seven. We'll talk about some time-tested tactics, um, some of which uh, you learned as a uh, brand new patrol officer, if you're in law enforcement, uh, the pincer movement, the hammer and anvil, but we just didn't know that's what they were called or where they came from. So stay tuned for part two. Uh, thanks for listening. As always, I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you got something out of it, please uh, share it with a friend and uh, send us any input. Thank you for listening to the Cato podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 